So that tonight I'm going to talk about some of the social dimensions of working with judgments. As you know, in the forgiveness practice, whether we are forgiving ourselves, forgiving others, or forgiving those who have harmed us, the phrase intentionality, or I mean, intentionally or unintentionally, are used. Sometimes I use the words consciously or unconsciously. And sometimes being intentional is done with awareness and sometimes it's forgotten. The same holds true for being conscious. In the practice of wise speech, the purpose is to have an intention to not cause harm from what we think or say to ourselves or to others. And that doesn't always happen. And being unconscious and acting from a place of unintentionally causing harm, as I understand it, usually comes from a place of some deep-rooted, unresolved, <coughs> and unbidded early message or messages. And that isn't always true. Some of these hidden biases are strongly influenced by social institutions, religion, cultural and social norms, societal norms. Language is important for many people. It's one of the many ways we communicate with each each other. However, the same word can have different meanings for different people. Without making clarifications, the potential of misunderstanding is possible. An assumption is made that they may not be helpful. During the time of the Buddha, his teachings were passed on through an oral tradition. And I imagine that with each community he taught in, he used the language that was understood. So he understood his audience. He understood who he was teaching to. So his examples would resonate for that community. So it may be useful to have a mutual understanding of some of the words used throughout this talk this evening. They are core beliefs, intentional and unintentional, and conscious and unconscious. So let's start with their definitions. I was on, uh, I looked up on the computer different definitions from different um, dictionaries, dictionary sites. Core beliefs is defined as the very essence of how we see ourselves, other people, the world, and the future. Unconscious is defined as the part of the mind that is inaccessible to the conscious mind and it affects behavior and emotions. And different communities, that though conscious and unconscious may mean something different. For example, in the psychology community, mental health and psychiatry may have uh, different understandings of how to, how to use those words or how they use those words. Conscious is defined as being aware of and responding to one's surroundings, being awake, I was surprised that it said that. Or, you know, it's like in one connotation, 
being awake means one thing for us. And then when you read it in the dictionary, it could just be mean, I just woke up this morning. <laughs> so who knows? <laughs> Intentional is defined as done on purpose, deliberate. Unintentional is defined as not done on purpose, not intentional, or deliberate. Sometimes it doesn't make sense to use the same word that you're using to define it in the definition to explain it because it doesn't really mean it's explaining it, it's just using the same word. So you can see how it can be a little confusing for people. So I'd like you to participate in an exercise with me. I'm gonna ask you a few questions and I just want you to notice your responses silently. And please pay attention to any emotions, thoughts, or body sensations that may arise. Ready? All right. When you look at me, what do you see? And just take this moment and to look. Maybe you see that I'm an attractive. <laughs> I had to put it in there. <laughs> I have to say it again. <laughs> I'm an attractive black woman who uses a cane and walks with a limp and is a Dharma teacher assisting Donald in a retreat on working with judgments. Perhaps those who have been in a group with me or individual interviews may have another perspective. I don't know. Now, close your eyes. Remembering what you saw, what do you notice now? Allow yourself to drop down into a space where the unconscious or core limited beliefs reside. This may be hard because the operative words is unconscious. Notice what comes to mind unbidden. The invitation is to not screen your thought, emotions and body sensations. Maybe you don't feel, notice or think anything about the question. I don't know. Perhaps you might think I'm not like other African-American women you may know, read about, or seen, or heard. Maybe you don't know any black people. I don't know.
And when you're ready, please open your eyes. Thank you for participating in my little experiment. (laughs) What you don't know about me is I'm the oldest of seven. I have one sister and we both are doctors. She's in uh, dentistry, field of dentistry, and I have a, a doctorate in humanities. I have five brothers and three nieces who have finished their undergraduate studies and one is in a graduate, in a graduate sc- school. My mother's family is from Barbados and my father's is six generations of Irish Catholic people from Nova Scotia and I'm a recent cancer survivor. How would you know any of this about me? Do you really want to know me? Yes. (laughs) I'll answer that for you. (laughs) The point of this exercise is to realize how we don't know, and in many cases, or some cases, don't want to know someone who's different from ourselves. And this exercise is so much more than about race. Here's an excerpt from a poem by Haki R. I'm going to mess up his name, Madhubuti. And it's a poem uh, by Gwendolyn Brooks, who was an African-American woman poet laureate of Illinois in 1968 until she died. America, if you see me as your enemy, you have no friends. And he wrote the poem for her, and it's called Gwendolyn Brooks, America in the Wintertime. How many of us understand what this means without needing further interpretation or to read the rest of the poem? What happens when fear or guilt or shame, blame, projections, anger, frustration, maybe even numbness get in the way? Do we really want to examine our dark truth? Jack Cornfield said, like pain, fear is the other common predecessor to anger and hate. Fear of loss, of hurt, of embarrassment, of shame, of weakness, of not knowing. When fear arises, anger and aversion function as strategies to help us feel safe, to declare our strength and security. In fact, we actually feel insecure and vulnerable. But we cover this fear and the vulnerability with anger and aggression. And sometimes we don't even know how to do that. We just make mistakes. We put our foot in our mouth, and instead of trying to just stop it, it just keeps going in. And then you just want to have the earth swallow you up because you know it's just getting worse and you don't know how to get yourself out of it. We do this at work, in marriage, on the road, in politics. A fearful situation turns to anger when we can't admit we are afraid or hurt or alone or misunderstood. And you can fill in the blank with a word that you come up with as well. Here's a poem about fear and its possibilities. 
rise and fall. Let go of fear and rest in that which is. For peace, like love, comes to those who allow it. Let go of fear and rest in stillness. Watch the breath rise and fall. Watch the tide rise and fall. Watch towers rise and fall. Watch walls rise and fall. Watch statues rise and fall. Watch empires rise and fall. Watch the breath rise and fall. Let go of fear and rest in the arms of the one who has always held you, the one who holds atoms and empires and oceans and stars. Let go of fear and watch what happens next. And that's by Larry Robinson. And I don't know if he's still the mayor of Sebastopol, but he used to be the mayor of Sebastopol. He still is? He was twice. Oh, twice. Yeah. What would happen if we let go of fear and then watched what happens next? As the poet Hafiz writes, fear is the cheapest room in the house. I'd rather see you in better living conditions. (laughs) Without insight, we are doomed to live our lives in this cheap room. I've learned that fear limits you and your vision. It serves as blinders to what may be just a few steps down the road for you. The journey is valuable, but believing in your talents, your abilities, and your self-worth can empower you to walk down an even brighter path, transforming fear into freedom. How great is that? And Soledad O'Brien is the person who said that. So what gets in the way of really knowing a person or a group of people? If all our communication comes from the media, reading books, or some other form of communication that does not involve a human interaction, or all we fall back on is what we were told when we were young, how do we get to know what is being shared is true? How do we get to know there's a difference? Or is there a difference? The Buddhist said, do not believe in anything simply because you've heard it. Do not believe in anything simply because it's spoken and rumored by many. Do not believe in anything merely on the authority of your teachers and elders. Do not believe in traditions because they have been handed down for many generations. But after observation and an analysis, when you find that anything agrees with the reason and is conducive to the good and benefit of one and all, then accept it and live up to it. Can we remember to do this for ourselves and for each other? Throughout history, judgments have been made that have led to challenging life consequences that have caused harm and for some have not. I'm only addressing the areas that people continue to suffer 
Many changes have been very beneficial to all of us. I could ask every single one of you in here to share an experience that you might know of that has caused harm in this, at this current time. Maybe it's personal or something you experienced or something you know about. And you know this, that the social implications of judgments are huge. In the United States, race, class, gender, age, health, housing, disabilities, mental illnesses, and literacy are some of the many concerns that cause so much confusion, fear, misunderstandings, and in some cases, death. And we have seen this, and it's been recent. How do we heal? Do we truly want a better world? And all of these issues involve some form of suffering. No one is exempt. We all suffer. We all are subject to reactivity. Martin Luther King Jr. said, demonstrated the strength of this love in the darkest hours saying, we will meet suffering with soul force. It takes courage to truly feel the weight of each other's suffering, courage to honor the other side's fear of annihilation and loss and of dignity. Yet until we experience pain and, f and hold fear and are held in wise ways, the cycles of hatred will continue. And that was from Jack Hornfield. And I think he wrote it during the time when there was a session of shootings in the black community of young black males around the country. I believe there are windows of possibilities when we love ourselves unconditionally, very easily said and not easily done. The Dharma gives us the tools and we interpret them the best we know how. May we cause as little harm as possible. Love is not just the intention to love, but the capacity to reduce suffering and offer peace and happiness. The practice of love increases our forbearance, our capacity to be patient, and embrace difficulties and pain. And that was by Thich Nhat Hanh. And I'm also reminded of a couple of quotes by uh, two African-American women that are an inspiration to me. Rosa Parks says, I would like to be remembered as a person who wanted to be free so other people would be also be free. And Mrs. Coretta Scott King said, freedom and justice cannot be parceled out in pieces to suit political convenience. I don't believe you can stand from freedom for one group of people and deny it to others. I was just, when I thought of that, when I read that, I just thought of after the inauguration, how women all over the world stood up together. It was a very powerful, powerful statement. And just visually watching it was so moving. I felt so good. <laughs> Here's a poem about the suffering in the world. A world in pain, 
That's the title, and it's by Warship Shire. Later that night, I held an atlas in my lap and ran my fingers across the whole world and whispered, where does it hurt? It had answered, everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. Is this pain any different from ours when we are in the grips of debilitating judgments and the judgmental mind? In the teaching of strategies to use for working with judgments, the words core limiting beliefs are used throughout. And this process from assessing judgments to the stabilization of transformation and integration is not easy. And it's not a linear process. So, you know, it's, it's shown on paper as one, two, three, four, and then you're transformed. <laughs> that doesn't happen. Sometimes I have found that when I thought I had finally finished with the restricting unconscious belief and felt proud of the work I had done, I wasn't. Has that happened to you? I mean, you think, damn, not again. How many times do I need to go through this again? This practice meets us where we are. For many of us, baby steps are a necessary requirement. And it may hold true for understanding the social implications of judgments as well. Some judgments that are made are beneficial. And for the tools that are being learned here, the focus is on the internal harsh critics that cause us unease, discomfort, pain, reactivity, and harm. We all make assumptions, judge, prejudge, interpret, assess, and reassess. The premise is the more we become aware of these, worn out, tired, cause us to be indecisive, fear-based, no longer needed, looks like this, but it's really this, years of reacting, not doing, painful, and outgrown habitual patterns of behavior. The more the tools we have actually use and actually use, the greater the potential for healing. Times are difficult globally. Awaking is no longer a luxury or an ideal. It's becoming critical we don't need to add more depression, more discouragement, or more anger to what's already here. It's becoming essential that we learn how to relate sanely with difficult times. The earth seems to be beseeching us to connect with joy and discover our innermost essence. This is the best way that we can benefit others.
And that's from uh, Pema Chodron. Donald described the heart practice as good medicine, and they are. Building a capacity to sit with some of our own core beliefs that are limiting requires change, a transformative process. This is the Dharma. This is love. And it requires courage, fearlessness, and deep compassion. Working these muscles is the practice. When I was preparing for this talk, and I can imagine anyone who has to do a talk and prepare for it, you, it takes you through a few changes. And uh, when I first started thinking about this topic, it just felt so huge and overwhelming because there's so, much, so many ways to go down a path to try to put together the thoughts to say, do you get this? And I didn't want it to sound like a lecture. And I didn't want to sound like um, you're going to go to sleep early. <laughs> so I said, well, let me try something a little different here. And I have to say, when I did the exercise with you, I was really excited about it because it is such a visceral way to get the point. And yet, as I, what I didn't remember is that you all are going to be looking at me. <laughs> and then what I noticed that my heart got started beating a little faster, and I started feeling a little anxious. And then I looked around the room, and I was looking at some faces, and they were smiling. And I was like, okay, you're going to be okay. And then I kept looking. And what I realized is that it is such a powerful process. It's a powerful experience to be really seen. And when you get to know someone, or a group of people, or friends, or however, whatever, like if you're teaching a kindergarten class, or third grade class and all the children are from different races and you meet their parents, you get to get a taste of the culture, you get to understand a little bit of how they raise their children and what we want for our children is not very different. So here I am sitting here thinking, I got this. Oh my goodness. And then when I had you do the um, closing your eyes, I thought, well, I can have them sit for two minutes. And then I thought, ooh, that's a little long. <laughs> and then I thought, but I really want them to get the point. And then I thought, how do I know if you get it or not? You might and you might not. It might take a long time. Or you might be like, OK, I got it. Thank you very much. Um, and that's powerful because when we go, when those places arise where we put our foot in our mouth or we get embarrassed or we say something and we don't realize that it does hurt the other person or it's said from a place of true ignorance and you really don't want to know what this other person feels in the moment or wants to do in that moment, that can be scary. And then if you don't have anyone to check it out with or you just think everything is fine and it's not, are you willing to take the risk to find out? You know, sometimes asking 
Did I make sense in what I said to you? And do you understand what I said? Do you have any questions? Be careful what you ask for. <laughs> and someone might say, yeah, what you just said, I didn't like it. And not everyone is calm and polite. People can be very, not just reactive, but appropriately responding. And it may feel reactive to you, you know, because of a preconceived idea. Like I know with my girlfriends, we get loud. And that to me is not limited to gender or race. Because I have some friends, we all get loud. But there's an image that's projected in the media and by some people they assume when a black woman gets loud that she's mad or she's angry. And each of us are individuals. Just like everyone sits here, we have our personalities, we have the places where we are willing to be more vulnerable in the places that we aren't vulnerable. And there's a thing called code switching, and I think it's very common in many um, cultures of color. It may not be called code switching, but I know you know what I'm talking about. And it's this. In your family of origin or with your friends, you may use your dialect, you may use your language, you may use phrases that are, are very common. You might have gestures and I, I look the way you look with your eyes or use your hands and you get it. We don't need to have a translator. And then with some other people, you change your, the way you speak, you change the way you, uh, not necessarily dress, but how you carry and you present yourself. When we go to interviews and stuff like that, how I talk with my friends is not how I'm going to be in an interview. But some young people now, they don't differentiate, and that's a whole different story. <laughs> so what I'm saying here, that code switching has been has been, uh, not adapted, has been cultivated as a way of survival. And now it's like second nature. It's like breathing. It's done. I, I've been in the South for about a month, and my grandchildren are, were born in the South? No, let me think. Where were they born? Well, anyway, they went to school in the South, but my daughter was raised in San Francisco. And one day they decided they would just talk the dialect of, of a lot of the kids from the schools. And I just sat there and sat there and sat there and I had no clue what they were saying. Now they were using English, speaking English. They had the accent, but that the phrasing of the words and the syntax and where the placement of the, the verbs and the nouns and I'm like, what are you saying? And part of it was funny because it's, it, my ears were not used to it. But another part was sad because the English was so poorly spoken. And I'm like, what are they teaching in school? So this, and then they switched right up and said, oh, Nana, you're just hopeless. And I'm like, it might help if you give me a roadmap. You know, and my daughter is a special ed, ed teacher, and she's an educator and has been a, a assistant, I mean, a vi assistant vice principal. No, a vice principal. And uh, she worked in the low, in the most severely economically deprived uh, part of Atlanta in the school system with K through three. And she would come home and just tell all these stories. 
And what I felt was so much sadness and despair uh, because of the level of ignorance and the level of lack of resources and the lack of education. And many of them didn't even know that anything was wrong. And it just was like, is this, is this what the next generation's gonna be like? And then I turn around and I look at my nieces and I look at my grandchildren and I know it's a spectrum. It's a spectrum. And it's a spectrum for many communities. It's not just isolated for young black children. Poverty affects us all. Poverty affects, and it shows up in so many different ways from poor health care to illiteracy to homelessness to mental illness and we can just go down the list. So sitting there and saying, what do I see? What do I know now? Sometimes without even trying, the messages that we have been given just come up. And then you, re then you respond or react from that place and don't realize, whoa, the person who's receiving is like, what? And then you realize, that wasn't my intention. I didn't mean that, but that's what was said. And then you wish you could do this, right? I wish I could do that so much. But essentially, you said it. So this practice of wise speech really helps us to cultivate paying attention with intention, with our thoughts, and what we say, and our actions. And I think it's tomorrow we'll be engaging in a couple of different times of practicing wise speech. And just taking that time to listen and to really pay attention sometimes can make a big difference. Another part of this that was challenging is how do I describe the suffering of the world? And I also understand that how some people of color treated in the United States who are from other countries may not have the same understanding of the impact of race in this country and what language is and how language separates you and that you may, and, and having an immigrant status also separates you. And then if you're not a person of color and you come from another country, you don't understand it either. It's not your history. But when you come here, that's not seen. That's not appreciated. And that's not recognized in some circles and some communities. And then we meet each other. And then it's a mess. Not all the time. Maybe some of the time. But when you bring all that and don't have an opportunity to say, let's have a conversation, it, you, can miss each, you can miss each other, you can miss uh, understanding, and then the result can be harm. The, the, the result can be, at times, people feel, ir, what is the word, irreparable damage. And I do believe it's possible for things to change. We have history to show us that. People in history who have done it to say, we can make it different. And then we have people in our lifetime, maybe a benefactor, maybe a mentor, maybe a teacher, or even a parent, yay parents, <laughs> that has helped make a difference, that says we can have this differently. 
So developing compassion is not a tool to remove the suffering, but rather a way of developing a relationship with the suffering. And that's the tools that we're learning here. It's a way to not only remove the suffering in terms of the tools we're learning, but a way to help develop a relationship with it. Because those core limited beliefs have been there for quite a long time. And the older you are, the longer they've been there. (laughs) And maybe the harder they'll be to get rid of, or let go of, or even see, or even want to let go of. Because there's another piece to this that's interesting. These, 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 these judgmental minds or these critics or whatever, whatever we do to ourselves have served a purpose. But they don't serve us anymore because they're not working. We can see it as a result of how we think and feel and behave. So it's time to say, you got to go, baby. You know, but, you, but maybe it's instead of always... Uh, one person went like, vroom. it doesn't work like that. And we both know, and we all were laughing. We were laughing. But to embrace, okay, thank you. You still got to go, but thank you. I'm going to make room for some new patterns, a new way to be in the world and with each other. And then they say, oh, no, 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 honey, I'm not going that quickly. I'm going to be as close as I can be as the, the color of your skin. I'm not going anywhere. So then how do you do that? How do you, like, peel it off of you and move it away? Because the, the more determined and committed you are to your practice and committed to change, the more determined your demons are going to be like, I'm not going anywhere. So then you got to figure out, well, what am I going to do about you? So if you embrace them, this is another way to look at it, and, let, and, and change the relationship, that's transformative. And the more solid you become in the new way you are in the world, the less charged they are with you. But they're not going to let go. You ain't going nowhere, what I tell you. So... Develop a different kind of relationship because I think sometimes the energy of pushing it around away negatively in some ways adds to the judgment. You know you beat yourself up about that and they're not going away. You're not doing this practice right and it's never going to go away and this is the way I'm going to always be and why am I even trying and maybe I need to go do something about this. And then you forget, oh, this is impermanent. This isn't going to be this way all the time. But those underlining core beliefs that are subtle and deadly are not going to move that quick. So we have work to do. And it's not easy. But this is our practice. We want to be different in the world. Better for ourselves in the sense of with as less suffering as possible to cause as less harm as possible, to do as little harm as possible.
As Jack Cornfield said, even this can be held in the heart of compassion. Knowing that we're suffering, I know that this is painful. I care. It's not a secret path to relieve the pain or to fix it, but to be part of the spacious heart of compassion that says, this too. And even this, these demons can be held in a heart of compassion. We are letting go of the outcome, being in relationship through the caring. And that is a taste of freedom. So now I'm at the end, and it's really the beginning. And using these tools for healing the judgmental mind and all the harmful judgments fills me with hope. And when I first was exposed to the, to the diagram and how to do this, <laughs> I was like, okay, let me try to practice it without the diagram. Because, <laughs> you know, it, it, instead of, you know, it goes like this and stays down here for a long time. So I didn't want to say, okay, this is what's going to happen to you. I was like, no, let's just be in the place of inquiry and curiosity and practice a little bit of this at a time. And if we cultivate a heart practice and use a heart practice as a foundation, that's what we can fall back on every time. When we remember to be kind and to have care and to be tender with ourselves, because this ain't easy. And the good news is we got a whole lifetime. It is a practice. So with this hope, I offer you a poem about gratitude. Gratitude to myself for working this practice. Gratitude for doing that exercise and getting through it. For both of us, for all of us and gratitude for everyone else who's doing the same. And this is called Arms Full by Rebecca Del Rio. And I found out she is either a nurse or a social worker in San, at San Francisco General Hospital. Gratitude means showing up on life's doorstep, love's threshold, dressed in a clown suit, Rubber-nosed, gunboats, shoes flapping. Gratitude shows up with arms full of wildflowers, reciting McEwen or the worst of Neruda. To talk of gratitude is to be the fool in a cynic's world. Gratitude is pride's nightmare, the admission of humility before something given without expectation or attachment. Gratitude tears open the shirt of self-importance and scatters buttons across the polished floors of feigned indifference, ignores the obvious, and laughs out loud. Even more, gratitude bears her breasts, 
rips open her ribs to show the naked heart, the holy heart. What if the sacred heart is not, after all, about sacrifice? Imagine it's about joy, barefoot and foolhardy, something unasked for, something unearned. What if the beat we hear when we are finally quiet is simply this? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So let's just sit for a couple of moments. Let go of fear and rest in that which is. For peace, like love, comes to those who allow it. Let go of fear and rest in stillness. Watch the breath rise and fall. Watch the tide rise and fall. Watch towers rise and fall. Watch walls rise and fall. Watch statues rise and fall. Watch empires rise and fall. Watch the breath rise and fall. Let go of fear and rest in the arms of the one has always held you. The one who holds atoms and empires and oceans and stars. Let go of fear and watch what happens next. Thank you for your practice. And you have a little extra time to go for a walk. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.